Welcome to Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion and culture with the personalities that shape it. My guest this week is Gian Delian. Gian is the editorial director of High Snobiety, but before that, he was at GQ, Complex, and WGSN. He's worked almost everywhere in the fashion publishing world. One of my favorite writers, Gian is an especially interesting person to me, because as you'll hear later, he speaks about menswear and clothing as a historian and an observer. It's fascinating. Gian and I spoke about his life as a young immigrant from the Philippines and how he climbed the menswear ladder. We talk about wardrobes, menswear TV shows, and we also discuss what pieces of clothing are worth keeping and what's worth getting rid of. Before we get started, I want to ask you, what shirt are you wearing? Do you like it? Did you get dressed today and look in the mirror and see how lame your shirt is and get upset? Well, I certainly did. But now I wake up and I put on a shirt from Taylor Stitch and I feel good. I've been wearing the Jack Blue Oxford and I love it because it's a good shirt from a good company that isn't destroying the world. Taylor Stitch has set out to challenge the way the clothing industry operates. From the way they source to the way they sew to the way they sell. You'll find a better product for the long haul at taylorstitch.com forward slash blammo. Right now, Taylor Stitch is giving Blamo listeners a special offer for 20% off their first purchase. So visit taylorstitch.com forward slash Blamo and thank me later. You got to hit it so it's, yeah. Yeah, you, I mean, speeding? we're going, we're live. So half the stuff that I do whenever I start recording any pod whatsoever is I basically asked them about what they had for breakfast because for some reason, a lot of people get red light syndrome. And you know what red light syndrome is? Yeah. Is so it, uh, uh, you don't strike me as someone who had red light syndrome because I actually just watched part of the new episode of Fit Battle. And uh, pretty interesting stuff. I'm a, I'm, I, I like Fit Battle a lot. And actually, and I want to talk about a lot of Fit Battle. I want to talk about High Snob. I want to talk about the life, the trailblazing life of Gian Delian. Sure. Did I even freaking say your name right you've got to write first try most people requires maybe like three or four tries really because yeah. i've known you for a long time and i think i've probably said your name wrong on more than one occasion but now i feel great that i did i'm sure i'm sure like 700 people that know yeah. me have as well I don't, i'm one of those people that's like if they're saying it wrong and i don't correct them within the first week i'm just gonna roll with it so <laughs> until somebody else corrects them uh, you, you do know that, that that's not how you pronounce it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, it's just Ian with a J before it. It's Jonathan Ian initially. Um, not legally. My parents shortened it so I can be G and Joseph. Wait, for real? Yeah, they were going to name me Jonathan Ian, and then they just put two and two together and came up with G Ian, and that's the origin story behind that name. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, Jonathan Ian, yeah. a.k.a. G Ian. Yeah. Legally, it's G Ian. So okay. It's on, it's, on that, it's on that birth certificate. I have it on my passport and everything. Well, thanks, thanks for coming on the pod, first off. I'm, it's a pleasure and an honor to be sitting next to you. The, the pleasure is mine. I'm enjoying what you're doing, and I've enjoyed your work for a while. Oh, thanks, man. It's, it's funny, because like, a few people will come out of the woodwork and be like, yeah, man, I fucks with this. And I'm like, oh, okay. Is that good? Are we in? Are we vibing? Um, before we dive in too deep, you're originally from D.C., right? Yep. Um, I'm from Virginia. I immigrated to Virginia Beach when I was four from the Philippines, where I was born. Uh, Wait, I lived you were in, born in the Philippines? I was born in the Philippines, okay. yeah. Uh, I was born in uh, Manila. I, I think the same hospital as Tim Tebow. I could be wrong about that, but um, yeah, you know. Claim to fame. Claim to fame, right? <laughs> so I was born in the Philippines. My family moved here uh, in around the uh, early 90s, probably like, or late 80s, probably around 1989, 1990. Okay. Um, and we lived in Virginia Beach for a while, and I lived in Washington, D.C. proper for about five years before moving 
up to New York. So my um, family's still around the Northern Virginia area. Shouts to the DMV. Shouts to the 703, 202, 301, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all the zip codes? Those are all the zip codes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the 571 now, now that Virginia has like a, another area code because it's so populous. Virginia. Or Northern Virginia, I should say. It's very important to make that demarcation. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Actually, that's a good point. There's a lot of stuff going on around there. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> Virginia is still Virginia. It's my home. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, what were you, with all due respect, why were you hanging out in, in D.C. and Virginia? What sort of work were your parents doing? Uh, my dad worked for the federal government. He, man, like, that's where I learned my hustle from, essentially. Like, my dad was a former uh, Air Force colonel. He went to the Philippine Military Academy. So, you know, I had, like, a tiger dad. I don't know if that's a thing, but, yeah, for sure. Like, Wait, for real? Yeah, he's a military man. Uh, so you, very so you were a military, military brat? Uh, no, by the time that he uh, had retired and moved to the States, he had, you know, gotten out of the Air Force. So, you know, he was... right. Literally flying planes and all that. A uh, funny story is that when he first uh, started dating my mom, she mm-hmm. was a nurse in the Philippines. She worked for a pharmaceutical company. And so she was driving around in this company car. He um, would always say how he got this mirror that he installed to the top of her car so that when he was like flying around the uh, Philippines and like the city, he would be able to look down and see the reflector at the top of her car. And he'd be like, oh, yep, that's my wife. That's my fiance. That's so pretty tight. Oh my God! Yeah, that that's really beautiful. Yeah, it's amazing. It's like you know, my my dad's like a pretty practical guy. You know, he's he's always uh, pragmatism over passion for sure. It's formed his lifestyle, uh, his spending habits, and pretty much everything that as long as I've known him. Um, and that the fact that that was his approach to romance, I was like, yeah, that that's totally sweet, and that's totally in line with uh, his character. Oh my God! But you wouldn't expect it too. But he's actually really funny. So yeah, yeah. No, I can I can see that. I mean, you're a funny guy. I can see where. That yeah, I definitely from. get that from him. That's why where all my corny dad jokes come from. It's like, <laughs> um, what were you What were you into in, in DC? So uh, you're I mean, a DC kid. DC kid. Um, I was into a little bit of everything. You know, I mean, that was the thing, right? You grow up Asian American, you sort of can code switch at the drop of a dime. So, you know, I went through my phases. Like, I was really heavily into rap. I was listening to like WPGC, WKYS, which were the two big rap stations in dc like coming into sixth grade you know like uh the first album i remember buying that was parental advisory was puff daddy the family no way out yeah like, uh my sister um farah she's like i have three sisters she was my closest in age to me so like she was a high school senior um in virginia beach she would like take class trips to new york uh, she would just bless me with some ill culture like she would bring home uh, Stretch and Bobito mixtapes. So wow. I did not know what I was listening to, but I was just like, this is dope. Like, she brought me home uh, when Wu-Tang Forever came out. She brought me home the edited version, but like, yeah. you know, still. Like it was just like sister. Triumph, Fire, Fire uh, song, and that's a Fire album. So that's sort of where um, I was sort of getting my, I guess, journey into hip-hop culture. Okay. Um, and then, you know, you move to D.C., Northern Virginia. I sort of discovered a lot of punk and Discord music in high school. Like, like Q and Not You? That, Q that's, and that's Not You for DC sure, band. but, you know, it's like Henry Rollins, Black Flag. Oh, come on, man. Yeah, come on. Rights of Spring? Oh, God. All that shit. Uh, Ian Svanonius, of course, man. Like, yeah. Jonathan Fire Eater, all that stuff. Like, pre-The Walkmen. It's like, it's so yeah. funny because you end up, you know, meeting these people 
when you move into D.C. and has such this rich cultural history, like oh, my job in college was Urban Outfitters, and so I worked in the one in Georgetown, store five in the Urban Outfitters mythos. Okay. Uh, it's across from the haagen where like Henry Rollins used to work and all, all this stuff. And so, you know, it, it, it's, there's all this history in like the D.C. streets. I mean, you know, my guys uh, at Commonwealth, uh, Omar, Larry, like they, they did this thing for HR. They did this collaboration where he was like, living in a warehouse and wanted to like raise money for them but man there was just you know I, I lived there during this weird time where there was a lot of really creative people in the post george w bush uh pre-obama era and so you know it's i don't think it's the same now of course with trump i mean i can see a lot of the seeds of resistance being there but i mean like u.s royalty was the shit when i was there and they did that big gant campaign with them um, oh, you were in D.C. at that time? I was in D.C. at that time. I didn't know. Okay. Also, like, Colella, who's huge now, yeah, um, yeah. she was dating one of my friends, Tosin Abasi, at that time, who, you know, really stylish black guy. He was the last person you'd expect to be a super prog rock legend. Like, he does this band, Animals as Leaders, uh-huh. um, and he, like, has custom Ibanez guitars. He's, like, on the cover of Guitar World as, like, this total <laughs> shredder guy. You know, he's, like, like, the Asian dude in Dragon Force who can just, like, totally kill a guitar but i think you know yeah the fact that you know i grew up filipino american and i could just sort of fit into these different types of cultures really easily as long as you know you sort of pay your dues learn what it is and then um you can sort of easily assimilate i mean like you know i grew up like really looking for my idols and i found them in like guys like willie santos in grind session and day one song you know not tony hawk's pro skater like although like (laughs) The, the actual people, not... No, not yeah, yeah, no, for <laughs> sure. But, like, I, that's how I got put on to, like, Daniel Samizu and all these guys, you know, all these Asian-American skateheads. Because um, when Tony Hawk's Pro Skater did come out, like, that was my... My high school girlfriend gave me that, actually. Okay. Uh, for, like, an anniversary or something, but... On, then, on PlayStation 1. On PlayStation 1. And then Grind Session came out, which yeah. is, like, competitor to Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. It came out around the same time as Pro Skater 2, if that's one, when you want to date it, but... You know, they had, like, Willie Santos on there and then Daywon Song, and I'm just like, oh, my God, there's, like, Asian skaters. Oh, my God, there's a Filipino skater. And he's, like, killing it. And then from there, you know, I just sort of discovered everything about, like, Ben Fong Torres and um, the Z-Boys, like, Zephyr Skateboards, Jeff Whoa. Ho, like, all these OG people in the game that just, like, happened to look like me. And that was just a mind-blowing moment because before then it was, like, Chad Hugo and DJ Hubert. <laughs> so, right. like, you know, that was... A uh, total uh, mind-blowing moment it was just like, you know, there's people like me that have been contributing to this alternative culture um, and have, you know, helped set the foundations for much of the stuff I'm into today. And I think that was like a seminal moment where I was like, maybe, you know, I can make a future in this sort of stuff because people have paved the way. I mean, like you look at PNB with like Song Choi, I think Brew is also like half Chinese. And so to me, it was always interesting that like, there are a lot of these seminal folks in the background that just happen to be Asian, and yet, like, were creating really cool shit, right? And um, became like a crucial part of that scene. Well, so to go back real quick, what made you want to go to school in DC? I mean, I know you you live there, right? Right. You, you go to high school there, but most cases, a lot of people leave their hometown to go to college. Mm-hmm. What What was the reason why you wanted to stay? If you don't mind, uh, I mean, I don't have any student loans, you know. <laughs> Hey man, that's I hear you. I, look, I went yeah. to you know I was in St. Louis. I just yeah. I, yeah. So people think I have a rich family, and no, it's just like you know I don't have any student loans. My my family is very very prudent in financials. I mean I'm in debt now, but that's all self incurred because of my 
clothing addiction, but like, uh, right. Okay. You know, I mean, I would say, yeah, I sort of had a sense of prolonged adolescence. I, I lived at home all through college. I went to George Mason University. Okay. Um, one of the most diverse schools in the country. It's also, you know, when I was there, it was a big commuter school. I would just, you know, drive yeah. to campus. And it was yeah. like 20 minutes from the house where I grew up. And I stayed at home. I lived at home until I graduated college. Uh, and I think that's like a very Asian thing, too, because I mean, a lot of Asian people, Asian Americans, when they graduate college, they live at home for a couple of years, sort of figure things out. But I had all four years of college to do that. And so like once I you know, finished up, I was like, all right, I'm out. You know, yeah. I like posed the question of moving out in my senior year. And my parents were like, you know, and to their credit, I thank them for that. They're like, no, just stick it out. You have one more year. Just like, that's really cool. Do this. And then, you know, once you get your degree and you sort of have your feet like planted, then you can sort of take your own independent route from there. And so, you know, sort of entered the adult world free of student loans and, you know, at the time free of credit card debt. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, that's when I sort of moved to DC proper. I lived on a, in Truxton Circle on on the corner of Bates Street and North Capitol, which was, uh, I mean, it's a lot different now, but, you know, there, it was still very much block by block. Like, there was a house on O Street that was more of an arts collective, but, right. you know, there would still be, like, crackheads roaming the neighborhood. I've had friends that have been, like, mugged walking oh, sh- home. Like, yeah, there's some, there's some tough areas around there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, granted, now there's, like, you can't go down 14th Street without bumping into a yuppie and seeing a Whole Foods or something like that. You know, it's... it's the gentrification is, has come swift and strong for that city. Right. Um, I mean, but I lived there for like two years, and then I moved to Columbia Heights, which I couldn't believe could get more gentrified than it was now. I mean, like I was around the corner from the city target on 14th Street um, when I lived there, and it was like dope. Uh, but now I, I don't even recognize like half of the places I used to hang out at um, when I go back. Right. And so you're, you're, go, you're in school, you're in uh, D.C., and then, obviously, w- were you writing at the time? I mean, because I, I, when I first met you, right. I, had, I thought you were living here, but I guess you weren't living here, but you were, you were a writer. You were, like, yep. writing and a commentator of, of menswear and hashtag menswear. Right, yeah. I mean, you know, I sort of took an old-school approach. I never had my own blog. My first big break came from writing for Valet. That's so right. So Valet, ValetMag.com, shouts to uh, Corey and his team. You know, Corey St. Louis. was working at the Washington Post at the time and had just started Valet. And I had a friend that worked with him there. And he's just like, you know what, like, link me with this guy. I want to start writing about men's style. And I want, like, a platform to do it on. And then so, you know, I took a chance on this young, inexperienced kid um, who was doing music stuff mostly at the time. We... Yeah. Uh, some friends and I had launched a music blog in D.C. called All Our Noise, and God, we had... Is we, it still up? It's still up. Um, I think it's like a TV site now, but like we had a whole crew, this guy, um, Miguel, uh, this other guy, Raul, um, and uh, Bernard. You know, these, these were guys that I had lived with, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we had this music site. We interviewed like the fat Jew when he used to be a, part of a rap crew. Oh, wow. And we had these videos with, like, Tosin and Colella. Yeah. Um, they used to date, and, like, they would do, like, these crazy sort of jazz uh, duets at, like, Big Bear, which is this uh, coffee shop on um, sort of the north, uh, I guess, I'm not sure what you would call it area, but it's sort of, like, First Street in D.C., Northwest, um, yeah. sort of near Shaw, but not really Shaw. Um, 
But yeah, it's really interesting to see how many people from that era that I lived in D.C. have now sort of spread their wings and become huge in their own right. Um, not just in the realm of music, but also like in politics, right. uh, sports writing. Like Amanda Hess, I knew her when she was a writer at Washington City Paper um, at the time. And now she's like blown up into one of the most prolific writers on sexuality, women's rights, and like real shit that I could not begin to cover in my lifetime. But she does it really well. Well, so I want to... I pause on that right there because one of the things that i like about you as a writer is you look a lot of menswear writers will write about clothes right menswear i get it you have written about an extremely wide uh array of topics so and i think you know you're you're a very talented writer but the stuff that i've read from you the most uh that i that has really resonated with me has actually been not the stuff related to menswear like um you know, like, so you wrote a very, very beautiful piece in Complex about your your uh, talk with Russell Westbrook. And I think, do you remember that? Oh, that was, that was my first cover story. That, yeah. yeah, okay, that was your first cover yep. story, right? So, and the reason, so when I'm saying that, I'm not like putting down any of the menswear writing you've ever done. But no, thank the you. the perspective that you, spe- that you portray and, uh, in your writing, it makes me feel like I'm right there. And also... It's not because that I've known you or, or, you know, met you before, but you, you know, a lot of the, the, some of the GQ writing, which I know that you've done too, um, sometimes feels a little bit just aggrandizing. And yours is very cordial, but casual and uh, really rich. And I mean that, like, the, the, the Russell Westbrook story that you did on Complex, which I'm sure is still up there, right? Yeah, I think that was like um, 2013, something like yeah. that, yeah. It was so good. It was so freaking good. I remember, I think I read it in bed on my phone and I was like kind of upset because I couldn't like, you know, I'm on this tiny little crap phone at the time that I like got out of bed, grabbed a computer to try to finish reading it. Um, so that's, that's a massive, you know, upward climb that you went from basically going from valet. And I'm, I'm kind of speeding your story a little bit right. here, but going from valet yeah, you're, to- You're skipping over the part where I was a defense contractor. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I- Wait, let's, we're going to go back to defense contractor. Yep. But wait, let's, let's jump to, let's stay on, on, the, on the Russell Westbrook thing. How did you go to like, get your first cover story? Um, I think, you know, props to the guys at Complex. Like Russ Bankson essentially gave me a basketball 101 refresher about how to write about sprouts. I mean, you know, I'm a fan of sports for sure, but I'm definitely but not, not as a... hardcore. Okay. I, I, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I watch games. But yeah, I can't never tell. I, I did not know what a triple double was until okay. like Russ told me. Okay. I was just like, oh, okay. So it's like when they get, you know, uh, double stats three times in the, across three things. Okay, I get it. That's, yeah. It's like I, my D and D nerd kicked in. I'm like, oh, okay, it's it's stats. It's all stats. It's like. But power you just levels. said Russell Westbrook told you. Um, Russ Bankson. Oh, Russ Bankson told me. I yeah. was like, holy cow. No, Russ Bankson gave me a crash course gotcha. in like basketball writing. Um, Props to Joe LaPuma and Noah Callahan Bever who thought I could handle it. Um, and I think what that comes down to is just for me and like why I'm still into clothing is that it's my main way of accessing culture and subculture. Oh, um, okay. You know, I, I got into clothing from the music end, like looking at how musicians and artists and sort of tribal uh, enthusiasts were outfitting themselves to communicate. Um, what they were into and also to feel more powerful and aligned as a tribe. Obviously it's a, it's a bit different now with how people approach dress, but 
especially with like how um, the Japanese traditionally approached. Um, I wouldn't say it's appropriating styles as much as just like getting the look and just going full force, dedicating themselves to it because you know there's a disconnect between like subculture in Japan and how it's actually practiced there. Whereas yeah. in America, it's like you know if you're wearing a Thrasher shirt, you should know how to ollie, uh, or like if you're wearing a Dead Kennedy shirt, then you should tell me all about like West Coast punk and all that shit, and you right. should be able to. To tell me Nazi punks must die or Nazi punks fuck off, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you have to understand what the references are and sort of be fluent mm -hmm. in, uh, I guess, the language of that culture. But um, yeah, for me, it's just sort of like looking back at everything from, you know, the Teddy Boys and the Crombie jackets to like the zoot suits and like uh, Mexican American style and how that evolved into like Cholo gangster style. Um, see that what you're speaking about right there though is not like what any other menswear guys that I've talked to they they like yes you you know you're speaking about stuff that you like and what resonates with you but everything that you're speaking of is through a historical perspective and almost a chronological perspective and that like yeah you just you mentioned that what were the I guess was there any certain influences that you had or maybe even in school or a teacher that you had that kind of forced you to look that way uh, in terms of like how you, you know, how you're you're cataloging all of all of your influences. I mean, of course, like you know, Tim Blanks is like the OG, right? And he's like the only person that could like speak to a designer and then talk about an obscure book about Renaissance banners. Yeah, and then it's like, oh my god, yes! I thought I was literally the only other person who had read that book, but he knows that book. Um, to you know, watching a lot of Glenn O'Brien TV party um, and like yeah. looking at him bringing Klaus Nomi on board and just seeing like how vested he was in just all aspects of the culture and not just like dress um you know he, this guy was like rubbing shoulders with basquiat he was writing the script to like downtown 89 yeah but yeah, yeah. um you know to a greater extent like nardwar i think the first time i saw nardwar i was just like how do i get like that vancouver british columbia Canada. right like canadians <laughs> it's like he he just brings it like he will pick a super obscure moment and then build from there and it just really just goes to show the power of like research and knowing your shit and how far that can take you in terms of like if you have a building block and you can like pick the first Lego brick that you can just sort of build whatever. You know, it's like that scene in the Lego movie where like he starts to see all the part numbers. And he's like, oh, I'm going to take this uh, bulldozer and build it into a mecca. I know it's super nerdy, but like to me, that's what it is. Like if you can see how everything sort of came together, then you can understand when it's recontextualized. Uh, no, that's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, in, in terms of, I mean, did you use that same preparation? And, and, you know, like, how did you prepare to say talk to Westbrook? I mean, I, I read a shit ton. Like, I think uh, I'm a believer in the adage that all great writers are even better readers. And you're just sort of trying to catch up to your idols in that way. Like, William Gibson is probably one of my favorite writers. Like, I read pattern recognition and just seeing how he would describe a uh, MA1 bomber jacket to Zuko or Parco in Japan to okay. Muji and like essentially reading how he would describe how um, brand averse Case Pollard the protagonist is to like being able to only wear certain items that would look um like they weren't out of place at any time from like 1950, like 1980 or something like that, or 1940 to like 1960 or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, the way that he wrote about clothes was amazing to me. And I was just like, I want to be able to try to emulate that. Um, you know, like 
what's more interesting to me is like, uh, you know, he was right about this Buzz Rickson bomber that didn't exist. He wrote about, you know, one of the main characters was always wearing this uh, black Buzz Rickson MA1, and ironically, they didn't even make yeah. black Buzz Rickson. They do now, though. They do now. Yeah, yeah, now, and it's called the William Gibson Collection. You know, he sort of willed that into existence, and it's something that, you know, he might have misremembered. But, um, you know, when they remade it, I think it was like 2007 or something like that. Right. They now make like a black MA1, like the one the protagonist wears as part of uh, that collection. <laughs> Insane. <laughs> That's, yeah, it's pretty nuts. Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is I've always been able to kind of uh, align myself to you because what you do a lot is in terms of like your personal style, you're all over the map. In the best way. Like, you're always trying new stuff. Like, I've seen you wear, jeez, what? I mean, like, from, like... Craig Green. Yeah, yeah. Uh, stuff like that. I, I had a hood by air phase, too. Yeah, you did. You had a hood by air phase. You had a Craig Green phase. You, but you've, you've never been not willing to try something. No, for sure. I mean, I'm, I don't, I'm not a uniform dresser. I'm an emotional dresser. I feel like you're either one or the other. Yeah. It's either, okay. like, clothes are a gap or, you know, clothes are a problem that I need to solve every day. Yeah. Or clothes are a building block to whatever I want to like put together you know it's like again it comes back to Legos right it's like I'm gonna try this 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 might seem a little bit more advanced but I'm gonna see if I can try to put it together in a way that makes sense for me um and I think you know for me I'm always a fan of of fashion as a form of self-expression and um you know it's like when uh was it um Wim Wenders was talking about Yoji Yamamoto and he was like you know, the documentary, he puts on a Yoji shirt or Yoji blazer and it feels like a suit of armor. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I grew up in forum culture. I was like uh, heavy on style forum, uh, super future, uh, dabbled a bit in style zeitgeist. Um, yep. I didn't warm up to it until after I met Eugene Rabkin. But, you know, that, that's the basis for like how a show um, like Fit Battle came about was just like seeing these photos of uh, kids putting on, you know, their... Uh, best clothes and just showing them off for the validation of the internet right and that's at the end of the day that's like that's what forum culture was right and then nerding out about it like that's where i first discovered visvim that's where i first discovered rick undercover like carol christian pole boris bedian sabieri and then you know there was that weird time where there was forum only brand like remember temple of johns yeah temple of johns yeah. oh man that's wolf versus goat yeah wolf versus um, goat. you know I discovered Band of Outsiders through Style Forum. You know, Amara Farinelli used to own this shop called Farinelli's in Virginia. It was probably one of the best uh, menswear shops at the time. You know, he started found a denim bar. I don't know if they're oh, still open. Oh, wow. But, you know, that, that was my first foray into, like, nudie jeans and APC. And then, like, you discover, like, your sugar cane, skulls, momotaros, et cetera, from there. Um, I mean, that's the thing, right? It's like Pokemon. You start with like the super basic thing and <laughs> gotta catch you level up and yeah, you got to catch them all. And it's like, oh, you're still wearing APCs, bro. I'm like, all oh, my skulls, these are part of the super future world tour. I'm wearing these for three months, then passing them to some dude in La Jolla. La Jolla. Yeah. So you, so since I've known you, you've had tons and tons of clothes. Obviously you don't still have all that, right? No. What, how are you getting rid of this stuff? Free grailed? Uh, Beacon's closet. Yeah, eBay, uh, forums. You know, yeah, forums. I, I would sell a shit ton of stuff on Style Forum, um, more so than Super Future. I feel like I had more credibility on Style Forum because Super Future was tough to sell on from um, from my experience. For my yeah, because I mean the shit that I had was not Super Future level. It was definitely more Style Forum level. It's like what Urban Outfitter, Stephen Allen, and like yeah. <laughs> anybody want a pair of like Red Wings, just like barely worn. I realized that I can't 
pull these off and they hurt my feet after two days. Um, yeah. yeah, but there's, you know, there's some stuff I've, I've kept through the years that I'm never going to get rid of. Like my first ever tax return I got from my first big boy job editing press releases in D.C. was a pair of black Chrome XL Alden Indie Boots. There you go. The and, four, uh, 403s. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, they didn't make them in black Chrome XL until um, that year, you know, and so I was just like, Did you get them from Weather huge. Soul or whatever? Shout no, out man, I got them from the Alden store on uh, F Street. Shouts to the Alden store. Oh, you know? dang. Yeah. Like, okay. I, my office was like on 11th, and so um, it was like right down the street from Alden, and I was just like, it was like that scene in Wayne's World where he like always visits the guitar and it's like someday she will be mine. <laughs> Except it was like a pair of Alden indie boots that were like, you know, four hundred dollars. And so yeah, my first like proper grown up tax return, I, I bought those and you know, I still wear them from time to time. Like Right. Just find the right okay. Oh, so you, you did keep those then? Yeah, I don't think I'm ever giving those up. That's like something that, you know, your kid steals from you when you turn like fifty and you he's just like, I'm gonna wear these. Do you think that you'll always be someone who has, you know, like a really wide variety of wardrobe and is trying new things? Or do you ever think that you're going to maybe, say, refine or, or wind down your style? You know, I don't want to say that because it's like you, you always think that you're going to be one thing and then you end up being not that. Yeah, I'm trying to do that right um, now. It's not working. I think, <laughs> I think what I've realized is that I just like buying shit. Yeah. I like buying shit. I don't like letting go of shit, but I'm in learning to let go of shit. I've realized that that's what enables me to buy more shit. Interesting. I mean, cause it's like, you know, it's like a habit, right? You sort of have to fund the beast in order to feed the beast. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I think for me, like the best use case of sites like Grailed is people who churn through wardrobe pieces to buy more stuff. I mean, you know, especially in New York, you have limited space, right? For things, and then you know, it's not that I get tired of stuff. It's just like, you know, could I see myself holding on to this for like another more couple more seasons, uh, and it languishing in my closet? Or like, you know, is there some kid out there who is probably like lusting after this in the same way I was, and you know, deserves a chance to like cop it for a lot less than it, it retailed for? Yeah, uh, I mean, there's there's stuff I'm gonna hold on to forever, for sure, and like I know that I'm gonna hold on to it, like the Alden Indie Boots, for example. I mean, uh, my Dries top coat, for example, there's like, right. you know, I mean, I, I'm a firm believer that any good wardrobe is built on a foundation of expensive mistakes. <laughs> you know, you, you're going to buy some stuff that doesn't work <laughs> out, but you're going to buy some stuff that you're going to actually hold on to because, you know, it really is versatile. And I mean, you know, in the same way that good style is about coming into your own as a person and realizing like what you like, what you're into, and then dressing the part. You're always going to come up with new interests, especially as you know, more and more people realize that youthfulness is, is more of a mindset than like an age demographic. Right. Like, am I going to get rid of my Motion Logo Supreme tee? Probably not. I think I'm always going to wear that, even as like an undershirt. But yeah, you know, it's, it's like a basic navy t-shirt. And it's like, it's cool because it reminds me of like this time, you know, when Supreme was relatively not mainstream yeah and you know the it's a dope logo it is yeah so it's, it's a just like logo. yeah i mean the taxi driver shirt yeah i can part with that in fact i think i have but you know there's some stuff that just has a weird sentimental meaning to a person that you just end up holding on to for one reason or another but that said i, I am pretty good about letting go of stuff they're your baseball cards man i guess you know i mean it's not like my honus wagner or anything maybe like my ken griffey jr like rookie gear card or something like that but yeah yeah i have a stuff that i've 
been trying to get rid of yeah. for a long time. And, you know, I tried the whole flip your, your, uh, your hanging garments around when you're not wearing them. Right. And then I was like, well, who cares? I don't want to wear them, but I'm still going to keep them. Exactly. Like, I have, to, I have to have these. No, don't get me wrong. Like, I think one of the other things I'm just never going to get rid of are, like, the Hood by Air uh, Horachi boots, the avalanches. Oh, and my the God. Tan. Do you have those? I have them. Um, I don't think. I, I just like them as an art piece. And, yeah. like, just this, uh, you know, th- this was, you know, it's appropriate that it's called the avalanche boot. That, that was the beginning of the fuckboy apocalypse was when that boot came out. And, like, all of a sudden, it was just, like, everyone was just, like, mixing all sorts of shit together. And, you know, it really just predicated this time where, like, people got super adventurous with how they dressed, even at, like, the New York street level. You yeah. Know? Um, and as, like, an object de art, it's, to me, it's, it's a really interesting time for fashion, and for New York fashion, when I look at those boots. Right. I want to jump back to your career a bit. Um, you were at GQ, or you were at Complex, mm-hmm. then you were at GQ, mm-hmm. then you jump to High Snob, which is where we're... Yeah, well, then went back to Complex after GQ. Then you went back to Complex? Yeah. Well, see, I don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah. So Complex were, were the people that um, rescued me from working at the uh, Department of Defense in, uh, in D.C. Okay. Shouts to Noah Johnson, who like, convinced me that I was tired of driving around the traffic circles and you know, wanted to move to the Big Apple. So he brought me on as a staff writer. Uh, around maybe 2010, 2011-ish. Okay. Um, so I was there for about three years. And then uh, you know, I le- when I left to become a style writer at GQ, I was an associate editor. Okay. And then um, you know, I was at GQ for like a, I don't know, a, a, a good baby period, like nine months. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was amazing. You know, my, honestly, like, when I moved to New York, my dream job was to work at GQ. But yeah. you know, like every millennial, you realize that there are other dream jobs out there. Kill and, your idols. Right, kill your <laughs> idols. No, GQ is amazing. And I, yeah. I, I still love like, you know, GQ as a brand and like what a lot of the team is putting out and everything it stands for. You know, it's, I agree. At the end of the day, it's the barometer of men's style. Like, if it's in there, this is how American men are dressing from Peoria, Illinois to Portland, Oregon and Portland, Maine. That's um, really true. And it, you know, like the fact that, you know, my friends at Kinfolk are in there now as like one of their best new or best menswear designers on the planet is, is yeah, dope. They, yeah. Um, and, you know, working with people who at the time were there, like uh, Michael Haney, like another amazing like mentor and idol that I had. Like amazing. Um, and when I was there, you know, it was a really diverse team. We had like Kevin Sintemang, who I think is a Wall Street Journal or Esquire now. Um, we had Tarek Fayed, one of our producers there, who's like a really smart coder, but is a really super diverse team Interesting. at an institution you would think would be predominantly white. And of course, you had Mark Anthony Green, you know. So it's like you had a lot of people of color creating content for what I imagine would be a primarily white audience. <laughs> and it was just like, interesting. it was really interesting because, um, you know, uh, as a minority in those doors, it was like a super humbling experience. Um, and that was like also the season when I was there was when Lena Dunham had featured GQ1 girls um, as she was like writing branded content. And oh, so yeah. they had Jenna Lyons in as her boss. And so they... Oh, my God. Yeah, I think that's one of the funnier articles I remember writing during my time there was like, uh, they were talking about the free snacks at the GQ office. And so I had to show them the vending machine that we had. I was comparing the real-life GQ office. We were right. still at Four Times Square at the time before we moved downtown, obviously. But, um, you know, it was decrying the lack of free sun chips in the office. And we had to buy them like everybody else. And then sun chips 
heard my cry for help and sent a shit ton of sun chips to the office. And shout so, out sun chips. That was a Sponsor small personal pie. victory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so shouts to sun chips. What's up with that garden salsa, though? Uh, but no, I, I definitely um, loved my time at GQ. I learned so much. But, you know, it's, it's an industry where you leave, you come back at a higher position, and you learn yeah, a lot. Yeah, true. I mean, you know, it's, it's honestly like a huge crisis of conscience as to whether or not I wanted to leave GQ. I had like a, a lot of meetings with people prior to leaving of like, look, like you were just offered on the table to be a deputy editor at Complex, overseeing like content strategy and um, the growth of, you know, this site where there's a lot of potential. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there, you know, I understand like, with GQ, it's like institution, and so it's like you put in your time, and then um, you know it is what it is. Yeah. But you know, for me, it was the opportunity to go back to Complex uh, outweighed my desire to stay at GQ. At the end of the day, you know, is one hundred percent business. Sure. It sure. just like made more sense for me to go back and then um, do more in terms of helping plan content and get more involved with the burgeoning video programs there than. Um, you know, see what my options were at GQ. So, well, that's so. Speaking of video, that's one of the things that I, I definitely wanted to kind of call and single off for you because you're a very, very, uh, you're good on camera. You're really easy and like personable and well, I think, warm I think on you, camera. Seventy five percent of YouTube com- commenters would disagree, but dude, <laughs> we can talk about haters another time. I no, don't that's know fine. Minute, but like, yeah, no, you're great on camera. Thank dude, you. People on the internet are. I'm sorry. It's a tough. I, I, it's tough. No, I mean, you know, this, this is what I've heard from like Jigs and Frazier at uh, a complex, you know, and it was just like, the thing about YouTube is that people don't fuck with you until they fuck with you. That's a good point. So I think it's, it's uh, I'm hearing that it's a bit of a war of attrition. Yeah. Where it's just like, you just, you, they got to get used to your face. And if they see that you're not going anywhere, then like, you know, it's whatever. Yeah. But also, I mean, it's, especially from doing this pod and talking to other people who have done their own pods and, and, and television shows and things like that like it's really difficult to figure out how you're going to have a voice for what you're doing but also reconcile that with who you actually are mm-hmm. and then find some way to elevate a little bit of who you are to meet the voice that you're doing so it's it's like this kind of push and pull back and forth and you right. do it really really well well like, i think a, lo- a lot of it is because i'm a preternaturally corny person so <laughs> just seeing that manifest on video is just like no this is just who i am amplified to an nth degree yeah um so you eventually work your way to high snob right where you're i mean and before that i was wgsn for a hot second yeah so i um i was like three jobs my whole life i've I've jumped around a lot yeah so after complex uh i was freelance for a bit then i was a trend forecaster for wgsn for a year before coming to high snob jeez louise oh that's right because trenzo Yep. Is uh, that WGSN? Hey, Trunzo. Yeah. Trunzo is my replacement. I'll text you back, Trunzo. He's killing it. You know, shouts to Brian Trunzo. Yeah. Um, so now you're at High Snob. You're doing a lot of video. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, with, with us, um, we're taking measured approaches to video. We're not, like, throwing a lot of things against the wall. We're just really taking time to refine some ideas. We understand that, you know, at the end of the day, you just got to get it out and then get better, which is it's very true. the... MO for a lot of video. We're not like trying to completely pivot into a channel for sure. It's just like I think what I love about High Snob is that, you know, my chain of command is David Fisher, Jeff Carvalho, and that's like those are the two people I report to mostly. Yeah. Um and they're pretty open and, and 
there's a lot of open discussion happening. It's not like behind closed doors type of stuff. And uh, it's interesting to me that you know we're working with a truly global team. Like we have people in Hong Kong, we have people in Berlin, uh, people in London. Uh, and then you know the New York team is probably like among like the smallest editorially. And this um, is a big office. Like I'm, we're sitting in the the high snob offices right now, and like it's it's huge. I mean, and I'm, you have what like. 20, 30 desks or something? Around yeah, we have about maybe like 15, 20 people here. Maybe 20, 25. I don't know. I tend to underestimate. But, you know, as a company, we're still under 100 people, which I think is amazing. You know, wow. 12 years in the business, um, growing slow and steady and growing independently. You know, I think David is one of the smartest people I've ever met and he's super savvy. And, um, you know, working with him and Jeff as two people who, you know, I regard as pioneers in um, this culture that we've helped build and continue to be a part of. They know how to really um, put the future of what we're doing in content in the hands of like younger people who can stay closer to the ground and empower them to create, you know, the kinds of stories that they feel like really can dictate the future of the platform. Yeah. Um, but in terms of video, you know, it's like we launched a documentary, our first documentary, first of many about counterfeit culture in uh, South Korea. Um, you know, and a lot of the things that we're doing now really stem from things we already cover. Like, we're not trying to be the most super serious news outlet where it's like, you know, every, everything that's breaking, we're on the ground covering it. We just frankly don't have that bandwidth. So we're just starting small with ideas that we know we can nail or at least refine once we start executing them. So, mm -hmm. you know, that brings us to the two series we are working on out of the New York office, which are um, Flips and Bricks and Fit Battle. Right. So let's talk about Fit Battle. Yeah, let's talk about Fit so Battle. So I, as I was sitting down, um, or before we got started, you were like, yo, check out, this is the new episode of Fit Battle. I don't know if this will have aired by the time that this, this pod will air, but um, I'm going to tell you, this is my fear of Fit Battle. Right. I am, surprisingly, I have, crazy image issues i'm all i always think i'll be super like you know disclosure on the pod like i've always felt that i was fat i got made fun of when i was younger like right. i hated high school because dudes made fun of me like the best story i have is i wore these glasses they were really big glasses and i remember in st louis which is where i'm from and i'm gonna use language on the pod this dude was like you look like a faggot and i went and i wore these glasses i hated it it made me feel so stupid um, but I didn't care because I, I felt cool. And then I moved to New York wearing those glasses, by the way. And I remember this woman was like, I love your glasses. Now, now like, they're called clout goggles, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no well, they, are, they were big safety glasses because I was um, super into like Kings of Convenience and Illinois. Oh, and yeah. Those dudes. So, so like actual true emo style. Oh, yeah. They were huge. Yeah. But I, I was in New York. Like and a I'm, cover of like the Promise Ring album. Like, yeah. 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 Okay. So I wear these and this woman, you know, or the girl, I guess at the time because I was like 19. She was like, those are really cool glasses. And I was like, never leaving. This is it. This is my home. But I'm still to this day really nervous and terrified of like people critiquing like what I wear. How, but, and, but in all honesty, I think that gets more attention than any, I mean, because I guess everyone wants to have a voice. Like you look at Grailed, for example. Yeah, I don't think it's as much as people having a voice as, as uh, you know, every kid who posts a photo on the internet wants validation. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. I exactly. mean, you know, it's like Tommy Tun isn't out there doing street style anymore. It's like Philow. But, yeah. you know, these are the kids that wear like the craziest shit and go hard during fashion week. And what they want is like a validation on a higher platform. And 
you know, with Fit Battle, it's like despite what people might think the origins are, it comes from forum culture. It know? does. Totally does. I mean, like, you know, I am so obsessed with uh, the new A11, like, chip from Apple, right? I was looking at, like, what the iPhone 8 Plus Plug. can do. Um, no, not, it's like organic, right? Yeah, no, no, like, no, I, I have you. the new iPhone 8, and, like, I have the, I've seen the 8 Plus, but, like, it's fucking crazy. You know, excuse the language, but, like, no, no, you can cuss I remember you when, like, 2007, when taking a fit pic wasn't just, yo, fam, like, take a photo of me in front of this pink wall. It was you going out, setting up a tripod, oh, putting yeah. a DSLR on it, or, like, whatever shitty DSC Sony that I had at the time. Graham Wanderini, um, what up? Setting, like, a timer, and then just, like, hitting that, and then, like, taking, like, several photos until you find a right angle, and then going to Photoshop. Yeah. Editing the shit out of that. Learning your saturation, and pretty much, like, everything that became a preset for Instagram, you know? Yeah. And, like, you know, shouts to guys like Sidney Lowe, who made a fucking book out of that, you know? Taking pictures who, of people who take pictures of themselves, like, it's, like, all old Sufu guys, like, shouts to Joey Kiefer, aka Joey Formal, like, he, he knows what I'm talking about, he's, like, old school Sufu head, you know, like Kia, Andrew Chen, all like these yeah. guys now that have um, gone on to other levels of the fashion industry. I mean, also, um, you know, Essential Man. That's Pete. That's right. Yeah. Jeez. So it's, you know, form culture has had a larger impact on menswear culture now than I think most people would realize. Like the fact that John's is common parlance on four pins or like that super sardonic tone of voice that that started with people talking shit on like your beat up geo baskets on Sufu. So how how is this translating to Fit Battle? Because my like just seeing that like I right. I basically I would want to I watch Fit Battle. Right. Would love to you know give people insight and feedback or whatever. But I would be terrified to ever go on it because the second someone's like, well, but you know Jeremy yeah. looks like this, I'd cry. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think um, you know what you'll see in the coming episodes, especially this this uh, one that we that we show we showed you today. Yeah, you know one of the recurring judges now is Eugene Rabkin from Stalls Zeitgeist. Yeah, so for us that's a way of reconciling like the roots of like the original right um, ethos of the show, which is just like people have been doing this. People have been doing this for more than ten years. Yeah, like people just want to be photographed whenever they feel like they're feeling their look. But we you know, take these kids off the internet and we introduce them to this, like, panel of judges. Yep. Uh, one's a stylist. Like, one is, like, a forum expert slash fashion critic um, slash amazing fashion writer, Eugene. And then, you know, one is a revolving panel of everybody from, um, you know, Danielle Greco from B-Files and, uh, spoiler alert, Lauren Schlossman. Yeah. yeah, he told me. And, uh, you know, we, which I think is another way of bringing things full circle, right? <laughs> For the critics, it's like, oh, yeah. this is like four pins, but it's like a show, which, yeah, kind of, I guess, but not really. This Again, it's like reiterating the fact that all this shit has existed before. We're just really manifesting it in a different platform. Right. Um, and I think what we do is we reconcile, like, these kids on the internet with these judges that are figures in the industry in some way shape or form and you know they have a real dialogue we always say like you know give a positive feedback negative feedback things they can work on it's true there is positive feedback yeah it's not it's not a hate show by any means no it's, it's not like oh come on and get shit on yeah i mean which no. you know people do get shit on don't get me wrong <laughs> but like well but still that's the point of it's the internet like, yeah if you go on the internet it's like don't don't go on a cesspool if you don't want to smell like poop, you know? It's like <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so the correlation that I make in right. this is this is stretching, but I've been watching a ton of Great British Bake Off. Mm-hmm. And uh so more than one person has told me on 
how Great British Bake Off is one of the best ways to hear and give feedback. Right. Because I don't know if it's the fact that it's these, you know, stoic British uh, men and women who are on the show, mm-hmm. but they give them like really honest feedback. Like, uh, you know, I mean, if, if you don't know, just go watch the show. But right. Paul Hollywood, the guy, he'll be like, you know, this was really good. This was atrocious, but this was good. And I'm yep. like, wow. I mean, and, and it's interesting because it goes a really long way of feedback, but that's, but that's feedback that's given to improve versus someone saying like, your fit is garbage, yo, go kill yourself. Yeah, no, I don't think, I don't think we get, well, I think, and I don't, don't know. you don't do that. You don't do that. I'm not I, saying. I can't say the same for Lawrence, but like, <laughs> I, I don't know his episode, we'll, we'll see what happens. But um, no, I think, yeah, at the end of the day, it's like we're, we're putting, you know, these kids or young adults in front of um, people that have the potential to put them on the radar and yeah. maybe take them further. Sure. Like, you know, um, in an episode, we have like a buyer and this person is wearing pieces from a line that he made. And it's like we're putting him in front of a buyer that could potentially carry his stuff. And she's like really impressed with his clothes. And oh, that's she really was cool. like, email me. Like, I love the collection, you know? And, um, you know, we, we were thinking of different ideas to flip, right? And I was just like, I love Shark Tank. Yes. But, one of the greatest shows of all time. You know, do you really want to have an investor in like a streetwear brand? Because that just defeats the entire purpose nope. of like streetwear brands. And as Sorry, somebody Damon who John. fucking hates clothing Kickstarters because they, you know, present a false dilemma to be solved. Oh, jeans are too expensive or they're too tight. I'm like, that's not even a real thing. And like, <laughs> no, what are you trying to solve for? I'm so glad you mentioned that. I loathe and detest clothing Kickstarters. Yeah. Like the Kickstarter that was, who is it? That they got me, I guess I shouldn't say it, but they got me a Christmas gift and it was the perfect hoodie right. quote. And I was like, there's so many things not perfect with a hoodie. Yeah, yeah, and also like, I'm, I don't want one hoodie. I right. want 10 hoodies. <laughs> right. But I think, you know, the, the this brings me to my larger point, which is similar to Kickstarters and similar to like Instagram popularity. I think what Fit Battle reiterates is that what's popular is not always what's good. That's and true. So it's hardly, in fact, it's hardly ever what's good. Yeah. And the people that should be the arbiters of taste are, you know, they need to remind people that why they're there, how they've stuck around for so long. And that's because they're able to discern the popular from the shit. Yeah. Like, you know, it's the popular from the ship, but they're able to like take down what's popular and really just dismantle it for if it's good and popular, which is very rare, right? Or just like just the hype that it is. Um, you know, whether it's something like Balenciaga to you know someone wearing a weird pair of like Nikes or something like that. You know, I think having those judges act as a barrier between like you know this is cool, but is it cool? And at the same time. <laughs> questioning kids on like okay you're wearing undercover number nine why are you wearing undercover number nine is it because you saw it when you filtered from low price to high price on grailed oh god and like read about it on four pins four years ago or is it because you actually appreciate what june takahashi is doing or can like tell me about your own connection to sakahiro miyashita and his own like weird kurt cobain fetish you know it's like that huge one (laughs) but you know i think at the end of the day, it's like what we're doing, too, is giving these kids a platform to, to really just drop knowledge, too. Like, I'm really amazed at the level of, um, you know, people we can bring in and they can just talk about how they got into fashion, too. And at the end of the day, that's the gospel I'm trying to spread, is that everyone has a different reason for getting into fashion and everyone has a different story about it. And, like, with Fit Battle, it's, it, that is the story. Like, I'm just the conduit. Like, I don't care if people trash me as a host because I'm only there to set up 
the meeting between the contestants and judges because I was once one of the contestants. I was the fucking outsider nerd that somehow ended up in the industry. Yeah, well, I mean, I would say you didn't just end up in the industry. You worked your ass off and got into it. One of the things that has happened a lot is, uh, for some weird reason, maybe it's because of how honest I am or how honest people are on the pod, is people will send me messages, and they're like, hey, what should I do? What should I do in my... And I'm like, just go do. work. <laughs> yeah. Go, like, you, you know, like, one guy was like, do you know anyone you could email with so I can get an internship at Ralph Lauren? I was like, go work at a Ralph Lauren store. Mm-hmm. Like, moved to New York. Get, you know, like, I slept on a mattress on the floor for a long time. Yeah. Like, go there and be there. And I think, you know, even people who I'll have on, you know, people who are very gracious and humble, such as yourself, you're like, oh, I ended up here. No, 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 you worked your ass off to get to here. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, people just don't always remember. No, but I mean, especially, you know, a lot of younger generation is just like, they, I want to be a creative director. Oh, I want to be like a stylist. And I'm like, okay, well, are you willing to put in time as a stylist assistant? Like, yeah. how many samples are you willing to run and return? You know? Yeah. It's, it's very much one of the last industries where paying your dues is still very much like the only way to get in. Yeah. Like, yeah it's very true. You know, Pierre Rouget just did that thing on business of fashion. He used to like lick envelope. And then um, that's how we like started in PR. And it, it's, you know, it's still very much that way where and just like put in time, but also more importantly, put in work. Showing up's not enough. Yeah. You got to show up and Sorry, then Woody Allen. do enough stuff to like get known. Like, that means going above and beyond. I mean, like, that's, that's the nature of the work. Like, it's like, you know, I've been here 12 hours in the office today. And it's like, Are you it's serious? Fine. Yeah. What's, okay, run me through a typical day, if you don't <laughs> mind. There's no such thing as a typical day, Jeremy. Yeah. I mean, you know, I generally try to get up at six every day. That's um, crazy. You ask me what I have for breakfast. I'm on coffeeist. So I drink coffeeist throughout the week, Soylent caffeine version. So that's oh. my first caffeine hit. And then um, by the time I'm in the office, I'm like trying to catch up on emails, obviously like working primarily with the Berlin team. It's like that's right, two ahead. hours is like me catching up on what's happening over there. Uh, and then I'm just sort of, you know, it could be meetings. It could be like things I have to edit. Um, it could be looking at video stuff that needs to be done. But, you know, it's, it's a lot of adulting. God, I can't believe I used to say that. But, you know, it's like, yeah. I can't believe I actually said that. Um, but, you know, it, it's like, Making sure that I'm doing the stuff I'm supposed to be doing and then working ahead to make sure that I'm not falling behind for tomorrow, pretty much. Yeah. Do you have any other stuff you're working on outside of Fit Battle? I mean, I know that you're involved in quite a few Of course. I mean, you know, we're about to launch a new issue. So, um, you know, High Snob is in a place right now where uh, the advantage I'm bringing in is experience at different publications, um, Mm -hmm. both mainstream like GQ and... uh, niche but now has gone on to being mainstream like complex you know i oversaw uh, a lot of the print issues at complex in terms of the buyer's guide side Mm -hmm. um so you know it's it's helping us really make a good editorial structure for what we should be doing and then helping strategize the kind of content we should be focusing on as we're looking to grow in a way that is true to the brand we've built in the past 12 years and really trying to highlight what kind of stories we could be telling um, and adding the right context for the people that have been with us along the way and the people that are just now discovering us. Yeah. Um, you know, so the interesting thing is like there's so much happening and so much uh, energy coming out of America in particular in terms of media, in terms of, you know, social awareness, 
um, inclusiveness, uh, general like woke stuff. I, I know you can't see the air quotes that I just made with no, my no, hands, no. but like <laughs> I'm just saying that's what I did. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of the paradigm we're working with now, and it's like working to implement that in such a global publication in a way that makes sense as well. Right. So you know, it's we're definitely still learning as we go, but a big part of my job is trying to synergize that with you know a publication that truly has its like, cans and places everywhere. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, not to get all like, I don't know, on a tangent or anything, but it is pretty wild to see how in most cases. So, for example, look at Fit Battle. The, the quality and production on that is as good, if not better than anything else on TV. Well, thank you. I mean, uh, you know, the first season, we definitely were definitely figure things out. Like we shot it on a shoestring budget, called in a ton of favors. Um, yeah. Now that we have um, built or are building a strong video team that has experience in building, you know, properties like this out, I can assure you that it will definitely get better with time. Yeah. And also, I mean, the viewership is only going to continue to grow in that. I mean, I know a lot of some of my younger brothers, he's, he's college age and he just has a laptop and he watches like Hulu for a little bit and then everything else is YouTube. It's right. all YouTube. So it, it's just, you know, I feel so stupid. The kids these days. But like, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're not, it, they're not looking to be on a specific channel. They'll just follow, you know, say like High Snob or, you know, any of the other I mean, yeah, you know, there. I love Twitch. I love YouTube. Like, oh, I'm, man, I'm watching like video game streamers, you know. There's like so many these days that have just created their own lane now, you know. And it's like I'm asking my five-year-old nephew what do you want to be when you grow up? And he was like, I'm going to be a YouTube star. I'm like, for what? <laughs> what are you going to do on YouTube? And I think this is, this is the disconnect again. It's like, well, what are you going to be famous for doing on YouTube? Because, oh, well, you know, um, my friends filmed me uh, doing a stunt down a slide and it's already got 500 views. And I'm like, so what? So you're going to oh, no. go down slides the and that's going to be your channel? Reality. Right? <laughs> it's like, what are you going to build your brand around? Like, you can't just like do one hit and then just like, if you're going to be a stunt person, like, watch Bam Margera's Epically Later to then come oh, back and geez. talk to me. Yeah, You yeah, know, yeah. like, this is a guy who literally put his body through a bunch of shit, you know? It's like, if, if that's what you want to do, like, okay, fine. Like, this is what you're in for, you know? It's like, I think there's, yeah, again, there's like a disconnect between like, oh, yeah, YouTube stars have it easy versus like, okay, well, what is the work you're going to build your career around? Yeah. That's, um, you talked about Twitch. Are you a gamer? Oh, dude, yeah. I've been putting in time on Destiny 2. Oh, really? You yeah. played Destiny 2? Yeah. So, real talk. We'll talk about this off the yeah. pod. Sorry, listeners. I'm a casual gamer. I mean, I, you know, the last game I played really heavily was Final Fantasy 15 before that. And then, um, you know, before that was uh, Fallout 4. But it, it, we have an Xbox in the office. Yeah, so, no, well, you, you'll regularly on your, your Instagram stories, I'll see, like, yeah. you and rappers. We play a shit <laughs> ton of, uh, of FIFA here. Yeah, I'm terrible at it, but I'm learning. Um, French Montana once came in and kicked all of our asses at Tekken 7. It was a sight to see. Was he Eddie behold. Gordo? Yes, he, was, he also dressed like Eddie Gordo. He was wearing a leopard print jacket. Say, can't be Eddie Gordo and win at Tekken. It's like being an odd job in Goldeneye. Yeah, true. But, you know, he, he's nice with it, man. Like, he's throwing satellite moons like no other, man. He's, oh, wow. He's killing it. I think it's really interesting. There is a, a underground world of, like, menswear writers and dudes in fashion that are huge into gamers. Of course. Are, like, that are huge gamers. Like, you, you said you played D&D, too, right? I, I dabbled in D&D, Magic the Gathering, you know, like, 
I was never huge into it, mostly because I had no friends that could play it with. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I read all the rule books. Oh, they, well, Back that's... Back in the Gygax era, I would hang out at comic stores and hobby shops and just, like, read. And I was just like, man, this is cool. And then, like, I would, like, sympathize or, like, empathize with people that would, like, actually play it because I had actually never played a game of D&D in my life other than, like, the computer games, which were, like, not real D&D. Yeah. But, you know, I, yeah, I grew up, like, playing Fantasy Star, uh, Fantasy all that stuff, Star. like, Diablo, all the Diablos. Um, I, I stopped after a while, though. Like, for a while, I got into working out, and now I need to get back into working out. Um, I played a shit ton of Dance Dance Revolution. DDR? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what's hilarious is that in a past life, I was like a huge, uh, well, I'm still a huge nerd, but you know, I was at like comic uh, anime conventions with Otakon, Katsukon, all that stuff. Right. Um, I had a site dedicated to uh, Busta Groove for a long time. It was on Zoom. If you want to date myself on the internet, zoom.com. Whoa. That was like probably one of my favorite games of all time. Like they had, you know, you know what I'm talking about? They had like Heat, yeah. Strike, uh, Kelly, who was like a cop in the second one, but it was like one of those games. It was like a rhythm action game, but it was like Street Fighter instead uh, meets Parappa the Rapper. Oh, almost. So good. Parappa the Rapper is also one of my favorite Yeah, games. like that whole genre just, and, and, and I'm Jammer Lammy, that whole genre just like totally took me by surprise. <laughs> I was just like, this, this is amazing. I did not know that, that music games could be this tight. I, I totally agree. I, what was it? The other, it's funny now because like a lot of these are also on your phone. I mean, oh, yeah. I remember when Dreamcast came out and I was playing uh, like Crazy Taxi and right. all those weird games. And the other Power day, Stone? Yeah. Oh, man. Power, Power Stone. Stone. Underrated. So good. Yeah. Uh, but I look over and I'm on the train and some dude's on his phone like playing Crazy Taxi. And it like actually kind of looks you know better what? than what it I, did on Dreamcast. I lost a solid month because I found out Knights of the Old Republic was on iOS. Oh, dude. And I just, that was my, that was a month. I, I blacked out. I was just like, I, I don't know what I did last month, but. I have two characters now in K-O-T-O-R, and one of them's dark side, one of them's light side. Like, I'm still a huge Star Wars nerd. No, there's no... Well, here's the thing, and this is, you know, to, to kind of put a, a pin on this. Um, for some reason, knowing all this, like, nerd culture and being a part of this is really cool now, and it's widely embraced. Right. And actually, I would say there's more people that are in the room that like Star Wars than there are that are like, right. Hoo -hoo, that's not cool. Well, that's the thing I feel about like streetwear now, street culture. Is, like, it's, it's the next thing that's going to be commodified and commercialized. Oh, no. You know, that's like, if, if you look at what, what, what's happening with, you know, a certain brand with a box logo, like, everybody's yeah. into it now. It's the new thing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like what happened with Star Wars. Like why Nico's Star Wars collection was worth a lot more because it was scarce back then. It wasn't as mass produced as the shit that they did with the prequels. Like, good luck making money selling Star Wars collectibles now. There's so many out there. That's true. You know, the market's flooded. Um, and now you can't go to the grocery store without seeing a Marvel superhero or Yoda on your bananas. And that's how, like... <laughs> That's how much You're inception right. the brand has gone. It's like, okay, people who like this one thing, like people who like Star Wars might also like bananas. So if we put Star Wars on bananas, that might be a good fit. <laughs> and it's, it's like, that's just too far for me, you know? So what do you collect now then? Not, not you, but just saying like, what is a, a normal person? What, what can you collect that's going to be scarce and rare? I mean, or is it over? Period. I don't know, man. I mean, like, I just went to the New York Art Book Fair. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just... I black out and I spend like $300 on, on stuff, but you know, I, I like, like ephemera. Um, okay. Yeah. Research publications, you know, they, they did the William S Burroughs tea yep. uh, with him holding like the machine gun that 
became reinterpreted on a Supreme shirt, but they've also done a reprint of um, Search and Destroy magazine. So I actually picked one of those up for Jeff. It's amazing. Um, you know, Eric Elms did a reinterpretation of the Yeezy Season 1 zine. Oh, nice. Um, it's all hand-drawn. It's really sick. Uh, but, you know, I was excited to get the Sterling Ruby print. He did a War Was One print as part of the installation at Gagosian. And they were just giving them out. Hmm. And I was just like, dude, this is dope. Like, I would love to be able to actually collect art. But for now, it's like affordable art pieces and like free prints. Yeah, I'm all about. I'm like, I'm not going to have, you know, bootleg Kate Moss Supreme posters in my room anytime soon or anything. You know, <laughs> or like, should I ripped off from like Lafayette Street? But like, right. you know, I think what doesn't change and what's collectible are still signifiers of taste. Yeah, that's true. Like, I think art is one of the ways you can do that. Whether, you know, I have like a Takashi Murakami signed one of his Vans decks for Vans. Um, oh, wow. Or one of his, yeah, the deck that he did for Vans. He, he like autographed one that I have hanging in my room. And even though hanging a skateboard deck is the corniest thing you can possibly do, I'm just like, I should probably just do it. Like, no, I mean, it's that's a, a, freaking, it's a work of art. Yeah. It's, it's cool. You know, well, you know, people might, uh, be contentious about whether or not it's an actual work of art, but I just think it's a flex to just like have a deck with like Murakami's like signed artwork on it. It's, yeah, like, sick. Um, so you know, I, I don't fancy myself an art collector by any means. I don't have that kind of bandwidth in my bank account, but you know, I, I do think like moving from clothing to object of permanence is a move that I see a lot of my contemporaries doing. So you know, like somebody like Noah Johnson, the guy who hired me from that complex in the first place is now into cacti. Same yeah. with uh, John Moy and other four pins alum. And, you know, they're both yeah. making the evolution into just like plant dad. It's true. Um, but yeah, you know, I think well, once you open Pandora's box and you have a very, it's like, uh, I guess Liam Neeson's character in Taken. It's like, you know, <laughs> I have a very specific level of taste. <laughs> like I don't have money, but I have a very specific taste level. And what I'm into is very obscure yeah. and cool. I would collect mini zines yeah. by mini an artist. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I think Noah actually collects like rare cactus zines. No, dude, he's got. Yeah. Noah Johnson is an enigma. I got, no. I, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, th- I think that's what the evolution is. You go from like obscure clothing and like um, really just like sought after pieces of one thing to really sought after pieces of another thing. As long as it, it stays within a specific subset of interests that. Yeah. Are relative to you, like Kyle Ng. I think of Brain Dead has a really extensive collection of like international bootleg movie posters, like how in the eighties, oh, you know, sick. like yeah. you'd see a Thai poster for Predator, it would look nothing like the movie, but like um, it was just dope to see. Like, yeah, I, if I were to collect something like that, it'd probably be like eighties NES cover art for like Mega Man, where he has like a six pack and is holding a pistol, and it's like. <laughs> Looks nothing like what the game looks like, but it's still just like okay, like someone's frantically typing it. Yeah, eBay right if you now. were telling somebody in like 1980, uh, you know, to take this blob and make him look like he deserves the name Mega Man, and by the way, like he's holding a gun in his right hand, I think that's what it looks like. Is this Arnold Schwarzenegger figure that looks nothing like the you know blue bomber we know and love? <laughs> oh, that was good. Um, this has been a lot of fun. I'm glad you came on. Be, before we, we wrap up, is there any other stuff you want to plug or add or mention before we, uh, we, we close up here? 
um, you know, stay tuned to heistthebody.com to check out our site uh, and the stuff we're doing on a daily basis. Um, subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can catch episodes of Fit Battle and Flips and Bricks and other video content for sure. And we also have a podcast of our own called Heist the Body Conversations. Yeah. Um, Jeremy Kirkland is also featured on there. I will be. I think, yeah, by the time for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this, this might be on before or after you're on there, but we'll figure it you out. Know, in any case, we might be existing in two places at once and create a time paradox. This is very true. But uh, it's, yeah, Ice the Body Conversations is the name of that. Uh, other than that, thanks for having me on. Cool. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to Blamo. This episode was edited by Jacob Singleton. If you like what you heard, leave a review. It helps let others know and discover the show. Subscribe and listen to new and archive episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, find me elsewhere on the web on Instagram and Facebook at Blamo Podcasts, or send me an email at jeremy at blamopod.com. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.